0: Today I want to share with you uh, the next portion of the blessing, my sermon, little sermon series as I depart here, and really this is kind of the last proper sermon proper that I'm, I'm giving to you guys, uh, because apparently on the 28th, I don't think any of us are going to be able to hold it together to actually put a formal sermon out there. I will still do my best, and just be prepared to be here for a long time on the 28th, okay? It's Memorial Day weekend, you get to sleep it off, it's a long weekend, so... But, um, but today I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 6 again, just real quick. I want you to read that blessing, that Aaronic blessing, that, that priestly blessing from Numbers chapter 6. At the end of the chapter, the Lord spoke to Moses, here verse 22, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. We talked at length about that a few weeks back, about how Jesus qualifies to be our high priest. And he's a much better high priest than Aaron or any of Aaron's sons, wouldn't you agree? And uh, Jesus qualifies eternally to be our high priest, and he has the right to speak this blessing over our lives, that the Lord Bless us and keep us. Each line, each of the three little lines that make up the blessing, uh, they expand upon each other. So the Lord bless you and keep you is the first idea. The second idea is that the Lord make his face shine upon you. And that's a beautiful image. And it harks back to the time of Moses, of course, where you can think about when Moses was in the presence of the Lord. It was so bright Moses' face began to shine from being in the presence of the Lord. The glory of the Lord is like this powerful light when He, when the Lord shows up and, and the dark clouds that, that cover him are removed. We can't actually even stand. The light of God is so bright and so brilliant, we cannot stand in his presence. In fact, if we were to see that, I think we would just simply perish because the goodness and the greatness and the power of God is too much for us. So this prayer, may the Lord... Make his face to shine upon you is actually quite it's quite an intricate prayer, isn't it? Because if our hearts are in any way unprepared for the presence of the Lord, not consecrated for the presence of the Lord, then the shining of his face upon us would not be a good thing. Does that make sense? So we want to talk about that a little bit today, and talk about what it means for the Lord's light of his face to shine upon us. The next line, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. This is a powerful and a beautiful idea, and it has much um, background in the, in the story of Jacob, for example, um, and uh, perhaps if we get a chance to go there, we will, but for the sake of brevity, the, uh, the Lord goes before us, and, uh, and this idea of the Lord going before us uh, is caught up in this little Jewish word, this little Hebrew word uh, called panim. And uh, panim is a, a word that, that means face, but it also means to go before. It means to prepare something in advance. It, it has many meanings, and, um, and really the story that, that defines it probably the most for me is the story of Jacob when he's returning from Laban's house where he has spent 20 years working for his bride's. And uh, you remember the story of how Jacob ran away from Esau, ran away uh, from his, uh, left his father and his mother to go and find a, a wife for himself and over by the Euphrates. And uh, when he went over there, uh, he met this beautiful girl at a well, and he fell in love immediately, and turns out it was his cousin, which is okay in biblical times, so don't freak out about that. <laughs> Some laughter from the South Africans right there, like, huh, Wow. all right, yep, anyway yep it was his cousin but they fell in love and he he decided that's the girl i want and he approached her dad and said hey let me let me work it let me work it off I, i haven't got anything to pay you for her right now but let me work for this girl and i'll give you the bridal price and so they agreed on a seven year period and um and so he uh he worked for those seven years and the bible says it felt like a day he was so in love what a beautiful love story imagine that and uh, anyway, then finally, when he's gotten the time, he's, he's got the time in, and he's earned his, he's earned his bride. You know the story. Laban pulls a trick on the trickster himself. Jacob him, gets tricked, and he ends up with the older sister as his bride. And um, and then he says, "Wait a second, this isn't right. Uh, I'm in love with the other one." And uh, not only could you marry your cousin, but you could marry both your cousins back in those days. So as it turns out. He was able to earn the second one by working another seven years. So he worked 14 years for Laban, earned his two brides. They had children. And, uh, and then he needed some salary and some, some earned wages. And he worked another six years for his wages, and Laban changed his wages a dozen times. Eventually, after 20 years, Jacob said, It's time for me to go back to the land of my father. And he got up to leave, but in his heart he was terrified. Now there's quite a bit of the story, you can read it in Genesis, but we're going to just talk about the time where Jacob shows up at the river Jabbok and he's getting ready to cross over into what is the territory of Canaan. And once he crosses over this river, he is at the mercy of his brother, who is a chieftain, essentially, a mighty a mighty man with many warriors serving him. And Esau is uh, no doubt at a distance, but will have heard of Jacob returning. And Jacob is terrified that his brother is going to kill him. Jacob has a promise from God. Before he left 20 years back, the Lord said to him, I'm going to give you a mighty name, and I'm going to raise up the family of Abraham through you, and I'm going to bring, essentially, the Savior to the world through you. All the world will be blessed. All the earth will be blessed in you and your family. And Jacob didn't really believe in God back in those days at Bethel, where he met the God who met him while he was sleeping. And he made this promise. He said, if you take care of me when I come back to this place, if I'm still alive, and you've blessed me, then you will be my God. Well, God held him to it, as God always does with the vows that we make. And that night at the River Jabbok, where Jacob had made the smart move, he'd sent gifts ahead of himself, for Esau. The idea was that when Esau came, he would run into a whole bunch of gifts in the form of bleating sheep or goats or camels or donkeys or whatever it might be. And each time there would be a a greater gift. And the face of Esau would be changed because of the gifts that had been sent ahead, Panim, been sent ahead. And so Jacob wanted to send the gifts ahead to his brother so that his brothers face panim would not be turned against him so this idea of the face and the gifts are all intertwined and then shockingly jacob has sent his family across and he himself is on the other side of the river and he is wrestling with god in the night and the bible tells us that he wrestles with god and it's kind of face to face panim and this idea is all caught up inside of this jacob's fear But God has gone ahead of him. Jacob has sent his gifts ahead, Panim. But God has gone ahead, Panim. And the face of God, Panim, is right there in Jacob's presence. And Jacob wrestles with God to the point where day is going to break. And the light is going to shine. And the countenance of the Lord is going to be lifted up. And the new day is going to come for Jacob. And Jacob says, you can't leave me until you bless me. The Lord bless you. And Jacob says, I've seen your face and the day is dawning, but I need a blessing. And so what God does is he, he gives him a new name. And Jacob calls that place by the name Peniel. Actually, he calls it Peniel, which is from that word Peniel, and it means the face of God. And uh, and from this story where Jacob now has this encounter with God that is ultimately I think his salvation moment. I think it's where Jacob really really wrestles out all of his his former identity and he becomes this new person because a new name is given him right there. I think he encounters God in a different way and the blessing of the Lord comes upon him. He has wrestled for the blessing from his father. He has wrestled for the from the for the blessing from his father-in-law. But here he wrestles God, and God blesses him. And Jacob's life turns around at this point. If you do a study of the life of Jacob, it's a turnaround point. And uh, and it's well worth the study to look at it. But Jacob after Peniel and Jacob before Peniel, different Jacob. He's known as Israel after this point. And, uh, And things actually go horribly wrong in his life from this point. But they also go incredibly well and right what happens is Jacob meets his brother and the grace of God is manifested his brother has accepted the gifts that have gone before him but as it turns out it's not the gifts that turned his brother the lord has gone before him and turned his brother jacob then raises his he takes his family and he begins to raise them in the context of the land that god is going to give them and he changes them from being essentially children growing up in the world to being children growing up in the promise of God. And that begins the problems with his children, believe it or not. You know, when you're raising your kids in the world, it's like there's no problem at all, but you try to raise them in the household of faith. It seems like that's the point where all your kids start fighting against it, because every one of them needs to have their own peniel, their own encounter with the, the, the panim, the face of God. And uh, as it turns out, you can't force that on anybody. Uh, You can try, but it doesn't really work. Jacob eliminated all the household gods. He he took even the ones that his wife had stolen from her father-in-law. They buried them under the oak tree at Shechem. And then he began to raise his kids. Uh, With a different mindset, he began to say, this land that we're in, God has promised to our family. And our family is to carry the name of God. And God is going to use our family to show himself to the world and ultimately to redeem the world. None of his family really believe it. And he notices that most of his kids are really not on the right track. So you know who he chooses? Joseph. He chooses Joseph as the one who's going to be the guy who, in his opinion, is going to carry it. So he gives him a coat that's all decked out, multicolored coat, uh, and he gives him great honor. He's the firstborn son of his favorite wife. He has four of them at this point, and um, and uh, you know anyway. Moving on. Um, <laughs> and uh, but uh, but he chooses this. He chooses this Joseph, and he's like, okay, this is going to be the guy. And he tries to instill in them the fear of the Lord. But Joseph has, keeps having these funky dreams in which all of his brothers are bowing down to him and stuff. And his pride in that moment and sharing those dreams, maybe naivety with his brothers, gets him in some serious trouble. And the troubles of Jacob really begin. His daughter gets raped. His sons destroy the, the city that, where the, the man who raped their sister was. Uh, and then they take his, I mean, his, his favorite wife dies and uh, and his mother dies and and um, and then uh there's just it, it just seems to go wrong and you could have this question where is the face of god that was lifted up on me where is the blessing of the lord that was lifted up on me and yet we know that the peniel encounter at the river with god was the life-changing experience for jacob and uh, i'll tell you this when we're when we're just living for ourselves in the world Uh, we have just the average average circumstances of the world. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. People in the world prosper. Sometimes they have tragedy. It's just the way it is. But I tell you what, the moment you turn your face towards the Lord, humble yourself, bow your knee, confess your sin, and say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you, it seems like all hell breaks loose against you. I don't say that to scare anybody away from being a believer, but it's just—it just seems to be uncanny um, that uh, that the moment we say, "I'm not—I'm not serving darkness anymore," I'm not going to be just living an average everyday life, which I didn't even know was worshiping every other god except God, and there are no other gods, and all of them are just an apparition of Satan. I didn't know that I was that, but here I am, Lord. I confess my sin. I'm going to follow you. I'm not trying to say to scare you away from making that decision, but when you make that decision, Satan doesn't want to lose his own. So he'll throw questions at you. If he can't scare you with philosophy, he'll scare you with circumstance. He'll even throw the word of God at you. Did you know Satan knows scripture? And he knows how to use it in just the right way to spin you off. I mean, it's so funny, actually, that the scripture he uses to, to attack Jesus in the wilderness when he's tempting him is Psalm 91. I mean, it's the psalm which crushes Satan. But he takes that psalm and spins it around and tries to use it to crush Jesus. It's like he's trying to steal the sword out of Jesus' hand. So it is with us as believers. Circumstances happen, and then we question: Is God really even real? Or, you know, you have a heart's need, a need or a heart's cry or something, and you pray to God for it, and it doesn't materialize. And then you think, Well, is God really even there? I want to tell you that for all the, the, the attacks to your faith that come in myriad forms, whether it be cultural, uh, or, or or philosophical, or uh, or experiential, um, maybe it's your health. Maybe it's your finances. I don't know. All those things. I, I just want to tell you, when you've had an encounter with God and you've wrestled with God, the Holy Spirit dwells on the inside of you, and he will quicken your mortal body and he will get you through. And Jacob does come through, but the story is really, it's long, it's, 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 it's painful. His first two sons are definitely rejected from being the ones who'll carry the line. He thinks Joseph is dead, so uh, is the one that he would have chosen is now gone. And uh, Judah is the guy who's going to be the next in line to carry. And Judah's a reprobate and marries a Canaanite woman and refuses to carry the, the, the sense of, of, of uh, God's call on his life. And it takes his son's widow to turn that around, that whole Tamar story. She's the one who believes. Thank God for Tamar. We talked about her when we did that whole series on the book of Ruth. She's the one who turns Judah around because she, well, it's a funky story, but she dresses up like a prostitute to lure him so that he can fulfill the, 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 the role of at marriage. So she can carry the lion of Judah, the lion of Judah. It's marvelous miraculous unexpected twist in the story not to say that in order to get god's mission accomplished we should follow her example but as we did say we should follow her chutzpah right we talked about that when we when i was preaching to you about uh, about chutzpah and chesed chutzpah being that 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 spirit that says nothing will stop me from getting to jesus and, uh, and and and, is the trust in His loving kindness, His covenant love. So, so Judah does actually have redemption, and uh, it comes. It starts in the story with Tamar, uh, and here you see the face of God. And this is perhaps I love this 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 story because what it does for me is it just puts context into what the blessing of the Lord really is in our lives. Because the blessing of the Lord, the Lord lifting up his countenance upon you and making his face to shine upon you, is not that you will never have any trouble. It's not that you will have earth-shattering success and you will have money galore and you'll have boats and houses on Nantucket and this and that. It's, that's not how the Bible demonstrates what the blessing of the Lord actually looks like. The blessing of the Lord does not exempt us from trouble because Jesus even said, in this world you will have trouble. So the blessing of the Lord does not exempt us from trouble. What, what the blessing of the Lord does is gives us God's presence in the midst of that trouble. He is a very present help in time of trouble. So that pres- presumes that there will be trouble and that God will be with us in the trouble, right? So I'm just, I'm just trying to get you into a mindset when, so that when bad things happen in your life, you're not saying necessarily, oh, the Lord has turned His face away from me. Now, it may be true, But it shouldn't be our first place to go to. The first thing that we do when bad stuff happens is we fall on our knees and cry out to God. That's the first thing we do. And uh, anyway, um, as we see, God was using this whole situation to rescue Judah. And he had actually preserved Joseph. And Joseph in Egypt had risen to fame and fortune and power. Because God is faithful to his word. And what a powerful story that is. And so, Joseph represents the Christ-like figure in this. Although Judah is going to be, ultimately, the Lion of Judah going to come through Judah. Judah represents us in the story. And Joseph represents Christ in the story. Christ who goes ahead of us. Suffers on our behalf so that he can welcome us in to royalty. You understand? And so he's gone ahead of us. So Panim, this is the going ahead. This is the face of God demonstrated in saying to Jacob, Jacob, listen, I can't tell you how this is all going to work right now. And if I did, you'd freak out. But here's here's the bottom line. I'm going to take your son away, and you're going to think he's dead for like 20 years. And then you're going to find him again, or he's going to find you. And I'm going to show you that I will have gone ahead of you to preserve you. This is what the blessing of the Lord is. The God goes ahead of us. And he clears the way. So that by the time we get there. We walk into his mercy. I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus said. This is exactly what he's done. And right now many of us feel like he's dead. Where are you Jesus? It's been a long time. Must be a really awesome place that he's preparing. So. This is the the face of God. Lord, lift up your countenance. Make his face shine upon you. This idea is encapsulated in the blessing. The the, the the priestly blessing is may God do this for you. May the Lord do this for you. May the Lord show you that he's going ahead of you so that when you encounter trials, you carry joy in your heart because you know the trials produce faith and patience in you, like James says. And when they've had their full effect, They'll render you perfect and blameless because God will have gone ahead of you and the trial you go through is going to be the gateway into that peace of God. So I want to read to you from Psalm 50 because this is the challenge to our hearts. The, the challenge is, as it turns out, circumstances are, uh, are really sometimes just really hard to navigate, uh, especially as a believer. Because we have we have multiple competing ideas for why we go through hardship, and uh, sometimes we go through hardship because the devil's after us. Sometimes we go through hardship because we're dumb. That <laughs> one tickled Jason. Jason's losing it in the back there. I'm learning something from you, Jay. You know, bottom line up front, right there it is. Just because we're dumb, bro. We're dumb. <laughs> Sometimes we go through hard things because we sin. And, and it's a consequence of our sin. Sometimes we go through hardship because God is disciplining us. Sometimes we go through hard things because it's just life. And it seems like there's no reason for it whatsoever. No spiritual reasoning can get us the peace that we need. We're just going through it. And I'll tell you that pain and hardship is the reason why most people don't come to church. Pain and hardship. The other main reason why people don't come to church is because they hate hypocrisy, even though they themselves are the chief of hypocrites. <laughs> but we all, we all hate hypocrisy. Isn't it true? Everyone hates it. We hate it, we hate injustice and hypocrisy and pride and arrogance. We just we hate that stuff. And for some reason, the church is always like this beautiful bullseye, a target for the you know, the hypocrisy accusation. It's like we've got these darts named hypocrisy and we throw them out. Oh look, it hit the church. The church are the greatest hypocrites in the world. Well, I'd like to push back and say, I don't think the church is full of hypocrites at all. I think the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ is full of people who understand that they're sinners who need grace and call upon the Lord and that we are new creations in Christ Jesus and He can make us new and He can take away our shame. Uh, we sing about it all the time. You know why? Because we need it. We sing the same kind of songs over and over again. It's repetitive songs over and over because they are true. Take away my shame, O oh Lord. But, uh, but the Lord also hates hypocrisy. And uh, as it turns out, Psalm 50 really addresses this. And I, I want to read it together I've got five minutes left on my sermon clock, okay? And I don't think I'm going to finish it in five minutes, but you can put your bets in right now and see how well I do. (laughs) Psalm 50, a psalm of Asaph God Himself is Judge. The mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. His God is Judge, He is summoning the earth to court. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Zion is that certainly a mountain in Israel, but it's actually it's the name of the the mountain upon which the the very throne of God is seated. In this sort of celestial uh, idea, this metaphor of God's throne room, this idea uh, has Zion as that place. And uh, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Really, really important. I'm just going to do some commentary along the way. Really important for us to recognize that God lives in total perfection. So anytime you as a church think you've got it going on, just want you to remember Zion, the perfection of beauty from where God shines forth and where he summons the earth. So... Um yeah, let that sink in for a minute, so that you never become proud of what you build in his name. Tammy and I have walked through Spain and we've seen cathedrals that have stood for eight hundred years and they are absolutely breathtaking and astonishing. The architecture is overwhelming. Ron, you're a fantastic builder. You've never built anything like this, pal never and you know what bro you probably never will i love you but that's incredible even if god were to let you win the lottery and you built a church right here on this spot and made it with spires and everything still wouldn't be as beautiful as that and you know what that is it's like a bungalow for god those cathedrals in burgos and and uh, and, and cathedrals in rome or in london or even in dc they like bungalows. They like shacks. They like mud and stick buildings. God lives in Zion, the perfection of beauty. So just in, t- in case you ever think, by the way, that you're just the most awesome worship leader with the most powerful, amazing song leading skills, just when you think you know you've graduated with a degree in worship and now you're all that big stuff, <laughs> I'm picking on the Welsh family. They're right, right, right there just want you to know I think I think I think it's because you were crying on the front row. I think you guys are astonishing and incredible and you're my favorites I love you guys but don't ever think that you got it going on because in the day you do you're going to find this God's going to summon you he shines out of the perfection of beauty in Zion yeah okay I'll tell you a story about me. I was lying asleep one time. Okay, if you put your bets in, we've got a minute and 42 seconds left. (laughs) I was lying in bed one time, fast asleep, and the Lord woke me up in the middle of the night, and I thought, what is this? He woke me up, but before I woke up, it was in that moment in between. It was a dream that I was having, and the Lord woke into, he walked into my room, and he's wearing a jumpsuit like a or like a sweatsuit and he's wearing headphones like you know Dr. Dre or beats or whatever and He's like you know hey you want to hear what I'm listening to <laughs> yes so he gives me the headphones puts it on my head and I hear this astonishing unbelievable earth-shattering can't even describe the music that was playing orchestral voices unbelievable stuff for a split second but it felt like 10,000 years and I was totally overwhelmed and he took the headphones off and he walked out the room gone I woke up in a cold sweat. Tammy says, are you having a heart attack? What's going on? For three days, I could barely speak. I asked God, what is this? What does this mean? And he wouldn't tell me. About three days in, the Holy Spirit began to reveal to me what it was that was going on. And the Lord said, Eric, how do you like that music? I said, well, I loved it. <laughs> he said, yeah, it's good stuff, isn't it? I said, yes, Lord, it is. And he said, you know, I, I have that music around me all the time. It's just it's perfection. I created music. You know that? Yes, Lord. I, the songs the angels sing, just absolutely amazing. The voices and the harmonies and the melodies you've never imagined, the instruments that you've never imagined. I mean, you think hip-hop is cool. Wait until you see what the angels can do. It's like, wow. Okay, but now you're bragging, Lord. So, you know, I can't deal with this. I, I, he says, all right. I said, what do you mean? He said, okay. He said, Eric, if you know that I'm surrounded by perfection, what makes you think? that when you pick up a guitar and begin to strum it, that I will silence all of heaven just to listen to you. Absolutely shattered me. My confidence was stripped from me. My arrogance was stripped. I was left naked, as it were, before the Lord. I fell on my knees and cried and confessed It was was a life-shaping moment for me. Because God taught me that I will never be an expert in worship. And it has shaped my theology. This encounter with God has shaped my theology. Listen, we have beautiful ways of entertaining human beings that make humans very impressed with us. But there's no impressing God. Man judges by looking at the outside. God looks at the heart. I found out many years later, or some time later, that there is a song that we can sing that silences heaven. God says to the angels, shh, I want to hear this one. Because it turns out God wasn't giving me a whipping. He was giving me an invitation. He was giving me an invitation to to come up with the song that does silence heaven. And it happened once when we were on the side of a of a road stuck. A car was broken down and we were in Mexico and it was the middle of the night and a thunderstorm and the most dangerous road for bandits in the world. And uh, and we had no cell phone and we were stuck. Everything was falling apart. I just didn't know what to do. And uh, my wife, she, I thought she was going to kill me, but I got in the car after walking around kicking the tires and opening the hood as if there was something I could do to fix it. And it wasn't. And she... I got in the car soaked and wet, and she looked over at me and said, I think it's time for us to sing. And my little daughter, uh, who was just five years old at the time, she pipes up in the back seat. She was fast asleep. She wakes up and she starts to sing, God is good all the time. Remember that old country song? She began to sing it. So we sang it in the car, and we sang it until we couldn't sing anymore. Then I turned the keys over and the car started, and we drove ten minutes down the road and the car died again. So we sang again, <laughs> but we sang to Jesus, not to the car. I cursed the car, but I sang to the Lord. <laughs> and we finally limped into our we finally limped into our our the town where we were being hosted was we were on team and, you know those team experiences, brother, you know, and uh, <laughs> you guys have done that kind of stuff. We survived that whole experience and what I learned through it all was that true worship is born in adversity. True worship is born in adversity. It's not born out of a stage and a platform with bright lights and uh, smoke machines and thousands of people cheering Jesus' name and yours. It doesn't come from that. True worship is born in adversity. It's when we can sing the song of the Lord that is the song of the redeemed. You know, the angels will never sing that song. They can't. It would be hypocrisy. Or they can't sing. They can't sing Jesus save me because they have never needed to be saved. They can't sing the Lord has rescued me and I've clung to him in the midst of my despair because they've never had a day of despair in their lives. They've never cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because they see the face of the Lord all day long. They don't need him to go ahead of them. They don't need God's panim. They don't need his face to go ahead of them because they're not going anywhere. They're in his presence all day long. In Zion, the perfection of beauty. We are the ones who traverse the valley of the shadow of death. And it's in the valley of the shadow of death where our songs come forth. The song of the redeemed that says, my God, though you slay me, yet will I love you. And that's the song that silences heaven because no angel can sing that song. And so, my friends, you need to know that the blessing of the Lord does not exempt you From trial, but the blessing of the Lord allows you to sing in the midst of your trial. And the song is not a good song because it's got great musicians backing it up. The song is a great song because it comes from the depths of your soul, from your pain, from your back that won't get fixed. And you praise God anyway. That's the kind of song that silences heaven, Scott Curry. And you, my brother, are doing it. And you don't need a crowd of 10,000 people to tell you, well done. Because your papa loves when you play and make music through your pain to him. Our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. When God comes, he comes as a fire. Tori, never forget this, my girl. God comes as a fire. When his fire comes, stuff burns. Let it. Let it burn. Willingly surrender yourself to God's crucible. Because what doesn't burn is pure gold. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. He doesn't come quietly. (laughs) Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. What's he doing? He's saying, heavens, earth, be my witnesses. The judge is gathering the jury. Well, he's judge and jury himself, but he's gathering witnesses to witness the justice of God about to be meted out. Listen. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. What sacrifice? Well, in the old days, it was the sacrifice of bulls and goats. In our case, it's the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Gather to me those who have covenant with me by sacrifice. That's us. The heavens declare his righteousness, and God himself is judge. Selah. That's the first stanza. That's the part that tells you of the majesty of the Lord. And my time is clearly up, so you lost your bets anyway. Can I keep going? Are you guys okay with this? It's Mother's Day. I don't want to spoil anybody's lunch plans. If you need to leave, we will not not laugh at you as you head out the door. We will bless you, and somebody will have chocolates for you. But... Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. That's us, by the way, the ones with the new name. I will testify against you. What? Wait. Wait a second. What? I will testify against you. Wait, Wait, wait. Aren't you gathering the wicked to judge the wicked? I thought we were okay. I will testify against you. I am God. Your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. In other words, the burnt offerings and the sacrifices in our day and age, because we don't have that, it's our liturgy. The burnt offerings and the sacrifices were the way that people approached God, by God's decree. And in the same way, this is our liturgy. You may not think we have a liturgy at Living Hope, but we do. It's just not really clearly defined. But it's there, okay? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) the new guy the new guy can define it you guys Jason you guys can sit and have a meeting and define it and say that Eric we never knew where he was going Uh, but not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you in other words the liturgy is okay the form of service is okay God's not having trouble with the way we do church but he does have a problem this is the God we want to bless us this is the God we want to lift up his countenance upon us We need to pay attention here. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds for every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. In case you ever wondered where that scripture came from, it came from a polemic. God's actually speaking against his people saying, by the way, the cattle on a thousand hills, they're mine. It's okay. You can use it to say, Lord, you have the cattle on a thousand hills. Would you provide for us too? But essentially God is saying here, well, he'll, he'll say it. I'll let him say it. Every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. What is God saying? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I don't need you to have church for my sake. I don't need your tithes and offerings. Well, you think that somehow I need that? I don't need you to build fancy buildings. I don't need you to get all bent out of shape because this isn't right and that isn't right. This church story is not about me. The church is actually a gift to you. It's actually a place where you get together. God doesn't need a building. But we do. God doesn't need the tithes and offerings, but I tell you what, the staff of the church really do. I mean, that's how we get our bread and butter, right? That's how you get uh, staffers in church, secretaries, and and, and people who done, do the finances, and worship leaders, and people on staff. That's how it happens. The church, the people provide, and that's how it works. But God doesn't need any of that. And He's not, he's certainly not impressed when you give it. There's a little corollary, and if we can flip it around, I can also add this on just as a little hopeful moment for you. For those of you who give and who are aware of the financial condition of the church and who are anxious and worried about how in the world the church will survive, can I just tell you, the Lord's bigger than you. The Lord is bigger than you, and he's got the cattle on a thousand hills, and he knows what you have need of. Your father, little ones, it gives him good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So fret not, worry not. Easy for me to say now that I'm leaving, but uh, for twenty years I have fretted and worried about this. Let me just disabuse you of the notion that you're in charge. You're not in charge, okay? So Richard, Jay, Charlie, I know if you're listening online, Amelia, you guys who have the responsibility as the executives on the on the board of directors. Of Living Hope Family Church. Fret not my friends. Fret not my friends. Listen to me carefully. I'm saying this to you. And I want to give it to you as a gift. Don't be anxious. Rich you're the treasurer. Don't be anxious my brother. The Lord knows what you have need of. You don't sustain the church. He does. By all means you give. Because that's right and righteous. But just know this. You will have everything you need. You keep your focus where it's supposed to be. And that's what God's getting at right here. Let's carry on. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. He says, <laughs> what sarcasm is this? huh?" <laughs> if I were hungry, I would not tell you. Wow, really snarky, God. Come on. He's actually got a little bit of a sense of humor as he gives this to you. I mean, he's, he's definitely taking out the stick. But at the same time, it's kind of, you know, I don't know. He's being, he's being pretty funny about it. Here's what he says. Do I eat the flesh of bulls? Do I drink the blood of goats? He's not, this is not a Hindu God who, who, who needs your, your bananas. Okay? Seriously. He doesn't need what... I'm sorry. Was that like offensive? I know I'm in Massachusetts right now. Do I need to dial that back and apologize for that? <laughs> I'm sorry. If I caused offense, please forgive me. There is one God. And all the rest are imposters. Can I just say that? And I won't dial that back. I don't eat the flesh of bulls. I don't drink the blood of goats. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Could it be more simple? How much does it cost for you to give thanks? Thanks. he's giving us a freebie isn't he even the poorest amongst us can give thanks he makes the gospel accessible to the poorest amongst us just give thanks just give thanks don't give complaints don't give murmuring don't give gossip give thanks give thanks give what you got give thanks and call upon me in the day of trouble. Don't call upon the pastor down the street. Don't call upon the government. Don't call upon all your friends who've got big sticks who can ride on their Harley Davidsons and go and take care of that person who is your enemy. Don't call upon anybody else. Call upon me in the day of trouble. And I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. This is, this, is, this is the gospel, and this is what it means to have the face of the Lord shine upon us. If we want to be blessed of God, then we've got to adopt this kind of attitude. Now, he's going to give a little bit more, and we're almost done. Listen to this. But to the wicked, God says, to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes? There is a difference between those who are, those who are righteous and those who are wicked. There is a big difference. And as it turns out, the difference is where we stand on Jesus Christ. The righteous are righteous because of Christ. And the wicked are wicked because of denying Christ. But here he's going to identify some wickedness that we might actually find even in our hearts as righteous people. We've been made righteous with the righteousness of Christ. We've been clothed with the righteous garments of Christ. We've been given this free access to the throne room of God because of Jesus. We stand only because of Him. But in the midst of that place, it is possible to have a garment of righteous that hides a wicked heart. How is that possible? Well, let's just take a look at this. To the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? What right do you have to claim the scripture? What right do you have to say, Jesus, deliver me? What right do you have to claim any of it? He says, for you hate discipline. What is discipline? If it's not the shaping of our will and the conforming of our will to his. Discipline is the breaking of our independent will And submission to God. And discipline is demonstrated in many ways. Some of it is remedial. Where God actually allows the consequences of our lives to be relatively harsh. So that we learn to never do that again. You hate discipline. You cast my words behind you. I know... Many of us are eager to claim the scriptures that work for us, and we love them. But when God tells us other things that we just don't like, we, we don't pay any attention to it. Oh, there's the obvious ones, like living with, your, living with your partner when you're not married to that person, and that's obvious. Well, maybe not so obvious in, 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 our, in our day and age. It seems like that's acceptable in our culture, but that should be obvious from reading the scripture. If you read the scripture, that one's, a, that one's clear. Any sexual sin, that's, you know, there. But uh, maybe, you know, murder and adultery. Well, actually, he'll address murder and adultery right here as well. Maybe those are the big ones everybody knows. But there are other ones, like spreading false stories about your neighbor or other people. Gossip, slander. It's actually, believe it or not, one of the big ten. God says you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And that false witness is not just in the court of law. It's false, false witness in the court of you know, the teacup. When you're sitting and eating cookies and drinking tea. Or fellas around the I don't know what, what do guys do. Campfire. Campfire with your buddies. The golf course. So most guys don't talk when they play golf. You know, they just grunt at each other. Gossip is not a woman's problem, gossip is not everybody's problem. But it's a Christian problem, and it's the righteous people's problem, too, because we like to do it. But that's wickedness in God's eyes. Listen. He says, you see a thief, you're pleased with him. You keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son on Mother's Day. These things you have done, and I have been silent, God says. You thought that I was one like yourself. Because God kept silent about it. He's poured out his grace. He's been lenient. He's like, "Mm, maybe I'll give him a little bit of time to correct that. But we've been so stubborn and so arrogant. We've thought that, well, God obviously let me get away with it. So it can't be bad, right? Now I rebuke you and I lay the charge before you. God brings the charge. He lays it before us and he rebukes us with this. Mark this, then you who forget God, lest I tear you apart, and there be none to deliver. That's quite a threat. Interesting, though God's making the threat, but He's not actually tearing yet. So it's actually, even though He makes the threat, and it's a very, it's a very firm threat, He's actually being incredibly merciful because He's offering a consequence, but He's not actually delivering yet. He's saying, "You better mark my words, or else this is going to happen to you." Kind of like we, as parents, do. Mom said, "You ever done that with your kid?" Say, if you don't pay attention right now, there's going to be some trouble. There's a wooden spoon in the kitchen cabinet and you're going to have to go get it. You know? I was terrified of the wooden spoon. I'm still terrified of the wooden spoon. Anyway. I'm going to end with verse 23 because that's where the psalmist ends as well. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one... Who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. And give you peace. Amen.